Welcome to Shed Sessions, the podcast recorded in the great sheds of the world, exploring food, art and the environment. This podcast is brought to you by Omved Gardens, a food space and garden in North London, and I'm your host, Tom Broadhead. This week we're recording in the shed at the bottom of my garden in Peckham uh, on a fairly drizzly late July morning, afternoon, not sure, it's around lunchtime. Uh, and I'm joined by Anna Suter, co-curator of the Rewind Rewild exhibition, which recently took place at Omved Gardens. And as part of the exhibition, Anna um, curated a lineup of various academics, policymakers, scientists, artists, to come and talk about what rewilding meant to them and their work. And so we're going to listen back to... Uh, a talk that was given by Fiona MacDonald and Tom Jeffries, two of the participants in that exhibition. Welcome, Anna, by the way, should say hello. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, would you uh, kindly introduce Fiona and Tom, who they are, what they get up to? Sure. So um, when uh, my co-curator Beatrice and I were working on this, we really wanted to bring a kind of conversational element into the forum um, and so we decided to put together Fiona and Tom. Uh, so Tom is a, a writer and editor who uh, generally explores the intersections between uh, art, science and the environment. Um, he's also the editor of a really wonderful online platform called The Learned Pig uh, which brings together new writing on art and nature um, and he recently published a book called Signal Failure about walking the planned route of the proposed uh, HS2 railway. A recommended read? Yeah, really good, definitely. Yeah, it's quite a contentious one, that yes. issue at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, definitely give that a look. Um, so we decided to uh, put Tom together with Fiona, um, whose work was in the exhibition. Um, and... Uh, Fiona creates work under the name Fiona MacDonald Feral Practice and Tom and Fiona talk a bit about this formulation in their conversation so I won't say too much about it. Um, but working as feral practice, uh, Fiona creates artwork in co-production with non-human species um, and we were lucky enough to um, have some of her works in the exhibition. Um, she does a really good job of explaining her own work so I won't say too much more um, but I will say that I think her ways of working um, and her concerns are very important and I think they offer some really exciting uh, alternatives to traditional kind of modes of thinking and connecting with the natural world. Um, so, yeah. Lovely introduction. Uh, shall we go over to Tom and Fiona then? I'm just going to start with a quotation from a Russian art theorist um, called Boris Groys. Um, it's, he says, um, art says to its spectator, I am not what you think I am, in stark contrast to I am what I am. The desire for non-identity is actually a genuinely human desire. Animals accept their identity, but human animals do not. Um, I think we, I certainly disagree with the second half of that, but the reason I decided to included, I was thinking about this just because it's been stuck in my head as a kind of idea for a while. And then I realized today, as I was just going around the exhibition, how true it was, because I have a bag with me and it's quite heavy, and I just left it by one of the works, and somebody walking behind me thought it was part of the exhibition and was looking at it in the most incredible detail as if it was something interesting, i.e. something not simply my bag, but actually something worth looking at. Um, 
And I thought it was just a nice example of what art as something that we agree on can do and can make us think and see. Um, so I'm just going to be asking a few questions from Fiona MacDonald, who has two sculptural pieces here. And we're going to kind of talk through her practice a little bit um, and see where that goes, I guess. Yep. So maybe the obvious thing is to start with your pieces in the exhibition yeah. um, and talk about maybe a little bit how they were made. Um, sure. We'll go from there. So I've got one image just... Uh, uh, so there's, there's two sort of tabletop plinth sculptures and they're both, they're really simply made by pressing, but finger pressing terracotta clay into skulls. So actually this, this fox skull was given to me by a friend who thought I might like it, he was right. Um, and then the, uh, the other skull is a roebuck um, that I discovered on a wander around the sort of woods and fields where I live. Um, and funnily, it was actually almost an entire skeleton. And it, was, it stank of fox urine, because you know they sent Mark their, um, their meal, if you like, their dinner. Um, so in a way, it sort of connects to, they sort of sit together in my mind. Um, but there's also um, something about the way that I work, which I think echoes perhaps some of that eco-feminist thought, which is a sort of a meeting between species um, and a, not a kind of dominant representation of, but an attempt to come closer in some way or, or elicit participation or engage in a, in a, um, a learning capacity in quite an open way with non-human beings. Um, and so the sort of fingerprints that you've got around the edges of the sculpture, which are my kind of hands against the, the sort of faciality or the, the representation or the maskiness of the fox, that was what I was excited by in the work. Yeah. I really like that it's kind of fingerprints as well that are so often seen as a kind of marker of individual identity that obviously can be repeated through kind of bureaucratic process, but also is like a com our unique identity as a human. And then yeah, in this yeah. context, it becomes quite different, I think. Um, I can't do any crimes now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're implicated right, yeah. right here. Um, and so the first kind of project that, that I encountered of Fiona's was, was called Foxing. Mm. Um, and, and I guess it's funny, actually, I was just thinking about this this morning, but um, a lot of my encounters with your work are through your writing actually and through a kind of even more mediated yeah. process than, than the process of making the work and then the work itself and then there's this kind of writing and dissemination online um, but maybe that's not what we can come to. Maybe foxing is a good yeah. example of some of the things we talked about today about finding whatever wildness means but in a place that is not, not out obvious. There. Yeah and not on a television or miles away. Yeah or, yeah yeah. So foxing came about it was, a, it was actually a commission by Peer Gallery in Hoxton so really, you know, urban London space. And they were interested in thinking about how their audiences related to the urban foxes that really thrive in the back alleys around Hoxton and keep every, everyone up at night in the mating season with their screams. And, you know, they obviously completely divide opinion. Um, and so I really wanted there to be some kind of real presence of the animal in this discussion um, and because uh, the fox very rarely has an opportunity to answer the either, you know, real love that people have for it and they feed them and, you know, Joanna Lumley has them curling up on her sofa versus, you know, most people go out with a rifle and want to 
kill them. Um, and I did try and get her a live fox. They had better things to do. So I bought this uh, pelt on eBay, and um, it was, you know, really easily available. You know, just came to me in a box. And then there's these uh, oppositional, these kind of little uh, LED signs that were scrolling oppositional um, adjectives, I suppose, descriptives that we might use. So things like marauding and sly and cunning and versus glorious and beautiful and, you know, the kinds of things that foxes elicit. Um, and then this was on the internet, just a kind of collection of news stories for, about foxes that had been in the news recently. But alongside that, I wanted um, the opportunity to, as often my work does, it's sort of an opportunity to engage in a way that is transformative for me personally with another species. So that ended up being two uh, strands. So this is working with a local fox rescue centre and ambulance. Um, and this is their centre. And I spent a few days either in the ambulance or just basically doing life drawing of the foxes in the centre. Um, and it was really fascinating, partly because of its, the mood of it. Like these foxes come in, obviously they're, you know, they're injured, they're hurt, they're ill, um, and they're, they're frightened. But they're really only frightened for a, a few, you know, 10, 20 minutes. And then they seem to settle down and they seem to understand that the people there are there to help them. Uh, and when I was drawing them, they seemed to go into this sort of dreamy space. You know, I get a kind of dreamy thing when I watch somebody draw. Um, so it just felt like there was, there was this kind of ordinary mammalian empathy and a, a sort of connectivity going on. And then this one was interesting because this fox, they put them to bed with a hot water bottle and a teddy bear. You know, it's really quite sweet. Um, but this, he'd sort of tried to explore his cage and then collapsed in a heap. And all you could see of this fox was just this brindled side. But then there was this, I don't know whether you can read that as an eye, but it was the teddy bear's weird blank stare. And it just sort of struck me as this really uncanny moment between the living and the non-living and the, the odd space that that created. So, you know, I had that kind of apocryphal chip of ice in the heart as I picked up my video camera and did that. Anyway. Um, and then I'm just going to whisk through. This was the other thing. This was me trying to make an interspecies action painting with my local foxes. So this is my patio, and it's covered in canvas, and I laid it out with uh, various sort of treats and fish skins and peanuts and cheese and elderberry wine. Um, and I tried to elicit the sort of magic of interspecies action painting, and the foxes were having none of it basically, because they just found this all extremely suspicious. So I had, you know, paint traps and clay traps, and they avoided them all very cleverly. So um, the, what I did have was also uh, a night vision camera. That was the, the one runaway success right at the beginning. So I got three fox prints, and that was never again. Would he ever tread on any of my clay traps? But I did get this, um, it became a real story between me sort of watching this footage every morning of, you know, uh, and you can see he's staring right at the camera. So I reckon there was a sort of sense where he could think that the, infra, the infrared light was a kind of locus of power in some way. So it, it was really fascinating. And so I thought it was quite interesting in regards to 
a sort of uh, thinking about assemblage theory or the way you know kind of causality becomes porous between me and another species because um, I'm certainly not the only locus of agency within this work. It sort of becomes what it's going to be, and I don't know what that is, and it evolves, and I learn things. And you've um, not only worked with foxes, obviously, well, not obviously, but I'm aware of that, um, but many other kind of species of plants and animals and fungi. And um, Maybe it would be good to talk about some of your work with ants, and then we yeah. can maybe kind of... From that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was thinking about you sort of asking me why earlier, and I sort of thought, in a way, it's because I kind of want to do everything. Um, but there's always, I started when I, I was a painter and a sculptor, and I had a studio-based practice until I moved out of London, and then that was really revolutionary for me. So I was in this daily contact with non-human nature again, and I started working with the wood at the top of the hill and making work in all sorts of different ways. So trying to make a kind of portrait as I sort of thought of it, more with than of this woodland. But after sort of two, three years of this practice, I, I felt like I was always trying to catch all of the things that I hadn't even got to at all yet, you know. Um, and then I went to a residency in, um, further down into Kent with Star Valley Arts, and I saw my first wood ant nest and was just really amazed by the... Uh, by that <laughs> experience and so have since then I've been working sort of for about two three weeks each summer have a little residency and have kind of really embedded myself in the world of wood ants and um, learning about them it's a good world to be embedded in <laughs> yes has it ups and downs yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the yeah. process of working with the ants because um the kind of re certainly reading the descriptions that that of your kind of, of the working process is super interesting in itself, or almost separate from or as well as the work yeah. that is produced? So working with, uh, you know, I try and keep it not just one species and become a specialist, but it's sort of a, a social insects and, a, you know, the foxes being a mammal and, and then plants and also mycorrhizal fungi to sort of cover some of the bases to think about how humans relate to non-humans and how art can facilitate and deepen or upturn or do something that, you know, uh, is, is productive in a way. So this is the first year when I just spontaneously started making paintings with the wood ants. So it's a really conventional little piece of uh, coloured paper and watercolour paint, and I was just putting pools of watercolour paint onto the paper and the ants were running through it. And one of the things I found incredibly fascinating was how different one nest reacted to, to the next nest. So some of them were never give up and just absolutely furious with this incursion. And others were much more like, I'm not going on there. You know, why would I? Um, being anthropomorphic. Um, but this is, you can see the, the watercolour, and this is one of the very busy, busy nests. And then this is formic acid. So if you know, that's the sort of ant sting. So when they're stressed, they will sting. So you can see how that's bleached the paper. And that sort of started to raise some sort of ethical considerations for me. Um, and so the following year, I went back and covered, was working much more slowly and much more carefully, covering the whole nest in these sort of lilac paper and using food colouring so that it had a kind of element of reciprocity um, so the ants could um, 
eat it, basically, if they wanted to. And we sort of tried out various colours, and they seemed to enjoy the black food colouring, so we stuck with that. Um, and it's become more and more uh, moving image-led as time has gone on, in order to sort of try to capture... I did, I did actually uh, exhibit those uh, lilac sculpture things in a gallery, but unless people have got the backstory, they tend not to really question what they're looking at, and so they think it's a, a human-made. It's been a process of uh, learning how to then sort of uh, open, open the process out to make it visible to a human audience as well. And one of the things you just touched upon that I thought might be interesting to draw out and has kind of come through a little bit in some of the talks is, is the kind of division or relationship between aesthetics and ethics. And you mentioned in those paintings how the, the kind of the, appeal, the visual appeal of the former classic can, can be yeah. really kind of appealing, I guess, in some senses. But then obviously the fact that you're kind of creating the situation in which an ant feels the need to be aggressive. Um, it's maybe ethically troublesome, and maybe it would be interesting to say a bit about how you kind of navigated that and your own, I guess, the ethics of the work that you're making in that, in that sense, in that kind of forming of relationship. I spent quite a lot of time thinking about that. Um, I made the work, and then I was kind of troubled by it, but I didn't stop making it, and I thought, okay, so why is it all right for ants to die? Because I have to kind of ask myself that question. Because at some point, I didn't stop doing it until you know I came away, and I was thinking about that Donna Haraway um, quote where she says, uh, "It's a misstep to separate the world's beings into those who may be killed and those who may not, and a misstep to pretend to live outside killing." So I sort of took that to think uh, about this sort of uh, having real double edges. So it makes my killing wrong but it also makes my being a killer completely ordinary. And I, I was sort of thinking about my art practice as it's quite an emergent and responsive uh, practice and process that is trying to be um, have one foot in the ordinary, if you like, one foot in the ordinary qualities of what it is to be a body amongst other bodies, to be um, active in the world, to eat things that aren't always entirely pure, in a culture that, you know, our, our meat industry is murder on, a, on an enormous scale, you know, it's huge industrial scales of stuff. So then you've got that, and then you've got, you know, your academic conference where it's the discussion of, you know, whether an ant was stressed at that point, and how do I... So I was sort of working through these things alongside what I hope is the work's act, act, action in the world and how it might um, shift... Um, a kind of conversation. Mm. And so there's a sort of ethical aim on some level or, or sort of political aim on some level. Um, and and it, it, there isn't... I suppose what I found is, you know, practically what I did was revise my practice to reduce damage and death as much as I could. But if I'm going to continue making work with ants, then I'm going to step nearer their nests than I would do and so I'm going to tread on more of them. But I think that no matter what, if I was out in the forest and walking around, there literally is no, no clear place to stand. And I think that's quite an interesting, both literally and morally, in the world, there is no clear place to stand, and I find that quite, you know... I really like that kind of um, idea of 
not trying to adopt a kind of pure position. And I think rewilding often has that problem. But I think thinking about that kind of entangled um, relationship rather than a kind of quest for some sort of pure, perfect exactly. wildness feels much more yeah. um, productive from an ethical perspective as well as an artistic one. Um, and maybe it would make sense to talk about um, the name under which you work, which, um, for those who don't know, it's Fiona McDonald's. And then this it kind of intrigues me. There's a space, then a colon, then a space, then feral practice. It's got to be equal. Yeah. Is that, so, was, firstly, <laughs> it would be good to talk about feral practice as yeah. a concept, but I'm intrigued by the colon and also the spacing. I mean, it's feral practice is sort of what I kind of intended the artist's name to be in order to acknowledge the, the co-creative you know, co-creation of everything I do, co-production of everything I... And I'm saying I, but you know what I mean. We do, if you like. Um, and the colon and all that is, is sort of... Partly because uh, I'd been working for 20 years before any of this happened, people wanted me to use my name because people might have heard of it. Uh, yes, so they've sort of been playing around with what configuration works. Um, feral is sort of about art. So it's about um, taking, for me, art, you know, when I moved out of London and I was in this kind of wilder space, for want of a better way of putting it, it made the art world seem much less real. Um, but there was, so there was a sense where I wanted to kind of get out art uh, my, my, and myself out into this sort of um, uncertain open space and reflect um, non-human activity and creativity um, so it's a kind of uh, an escape you know the idea of a, a feral thing being a, something that's escaped from captivity so that's where it comes from but it isn't a pure space there's a that's important yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's a biologist who some people may know he's kind of Rupert Sheldrake who does a lot of work with animals there's one nod um, <laughs> And he refers to himself as a feral biologist, I think, which okay. is like, for him, it's something that takes place outside the laboratory, but it also takes place outside the kind of institution of, yeah. like, big science, I guess. And it's something maybe more of a personal practice and more ground up or citizen-led or something like that. Um, yeah, and which... also that observing um, creatures in their natural spaces rather than in, in laboratory. Yeah, yeah. You know. I wanted to ask actually about the process of observation because in a lot of Fiona's descriptions of the work, in particular with the ants, um, the observation is amazing. It's so super detailed in a way that maybe scientists or some kind of field biologists would also do, but with such a different mm. agenda maybe, or maybe not actually, I don't know. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the observation and maybe how it's changed your own perception and why it's important to talk about that in the writing as well, the, that kind of super close observation of another species? Yeah. It's really been transformative working with the ants for uh, repeatedly. And also this kind of rhythm that I've got, which is uh, I spend usually a couple of weeks over the summer. And then I've got this long period of reflection and thinking about it, reading about it, and then going back again. And it's become like a new film, except basically each, each year that I shoot. Um, but so I learn stuff about ants, obviously. <laughs> but there's also, I've been 
in, in, I suppose, in, in an art practice, one is allowed to be sort of speculative and uh, throwaway or playful or put things together in, you know, not logical ways in a way that perhaps a scientist would not be allowed to do. So you sort of, uh, reading about, um, there's this fascinating book actually called What a Plant, no, that's the other book. Uh, what's it called? Thus Spoke the Plant by Monica Gagliano, I think. And she's talking about how uh, she's an Australian research scientist and she's been working on plants and how, you know, normally when you're writing your research funding proposal, you have to have your outcomes pretty much, you know, nailed down. I hope to find this, I expect to find this, it will look like that, that's how I'm going to do it. And she went on this Peruvian trip dieting plants with shamans and, you know, had a conversation with a cannonball tree, as you do, came back and made a series of experiments without, out, without any predetermined outcomes. And she discovered that um, young plants can communicate by the crackles of their roots. And this was completely new to science. And I was really excited by that and also thinking, gosh, that's, that's a bit like what it is when you're an artist and you kind of, you can, obviously you've still got to do these art, annoying art council applications where you have to kind of, but they also don't mind really if once you've got the money you go off and something else happens. So we're in a kind of peculiar space where we can um, be really speculative and a bit silly and sometimes really interesting things come out of it. So when I did those initial painting things and I discovered this stuff about differentiation between ants and nests, then I you know, read up about it and it's quite recent science. And I was just there, you know, complete beginner going, oh, look, that's interesting. This is possibly the first artist or one of the first artists that I've come across that's collaborated with animals to create a piece, which is it's a very interesting concept. Um, there are other, I guess there are other notable works. There's the, the hive at Kew Gardens, which is another fantastic example of it. Mm. But how far do we see this as a collaboration with the environment? Is collaboration the right word? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, this was actually something that came up in the, the Q&A uh, afterwards. Um, and uh, Fiona said that she actually prefers to use the term co-production um, because know the you know if she's working with foxes they don't intend to create a work of art with her um and in fact you know from what she's saying they actually seem to be actively trying to avoid stepping on the piece of canvas that she's put down on the patio or whatever um but there is um an agency there that the artwork is created not only by her, but by other species as well. Mm. And she's not directing how these other non-human animals or insects act. They there's act according to their own intentions and their own activities. There's almost a purity to it, isn't there, really, through mm. that non-agency. It's almost like when, um, I mean, I don't want to try and humanise everything, but it's almost like when a, when a child creates a piece of incredible art without even realising it or... Or it's so unintentional that there is something really quite strikingly beautiful about it, I'd say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think what makes it exciting, though, is that, you know, 
by or like her ant pieces for instance which use these uh bits of colored food coloring um and the ants make their own tracks across the paper um and they're just going about their business but they're also interacting with what Fiona has put on this piece of paper in the form of this food coloring which you know can act as like a food for them as well um so there's this kind of point of contact between the human and the non-human and human intentions and non-human intentions and they sort of come together in this really beautiful way which is in some ways very simple um but it's also really exciting because not many people are doing it like you said um and it kind of has this opportunity i think to be very respectful towards the natural world Mm, I, I like the way that she talks about when the was it when the hedgehogs didn't quite play ball when foxes. she when the foxes sorry and she'd set up she basically um uprooted her whole backyard to make a canvas <laughs> across it and set out various was it paint or clay traps yeah. you might say that the foxes might step in and create a canvas and they just complete she was outfoxed by the fox it seems <laughs> and um i thought that was and it was a, actually i thought in there's a lovely um sort of humility that fiona sort of showed in that and, and in a way yeah. it's in a way it's kind of even more a piece of art for the fact that the foxes didn't they didn't show up and didn't take the bait you know yeah and i think what i really like about fiona's practice is that there is that kind of open-ended experimentation that she's talking about that you know, yes, her original idea was to get the foxes to walk on the canvas or stand in the clay or whatever it was, but actually the process of working out whether or not they would and how they would respond to the canvas or the clay is as much the artwork as the, you know, the final thing which you might put on a wall or you might put on a plinth, um, but equally you might not, especially if the foxes never walk on it. Um, so... Yeah, I think it has this very interesting, completely thought through element um, that every single aspect of making the work um, contributes to its meaning. Um, and I think that's a really important element of sort of ecological modes of working uh, and of being creative, um, which I think are kind of echoing the sort of interconnectivity of ecosystems that we've been talking about quite a lot in this in this podcast um, and the idea that all of your actions do have consequences. Mm. And, you know, when she talks about the ants as well, when she talks about whether or not it's an ethical dilemma to be killing some ants by stepping close to their nests. Sure. But equally, if you just walk across the garden, you might well kill an ant and you can never stop yourself from but, doing that it would but be because impossible. of the intent that comes with the creation of art does that question the ethics of it yeah. yeah yeah exactly and that process of questioning the ethics is almost part of the artwork as well yeah. because she would never raise those questions without stepping that close to an ant's nest well this is something actually that we've seen before um i, I visited uh q a few weeks ago and went around with um this guy called hulk hulker i can't remember his surname but he was he was dr hulker Roch or Koch, something like that, and his and he was basically the sort of the one of the postdoc students studying bees, and he has this huge display of all the different bee um, 
subspecies in mm. this country of which there are around 275 and one of the questions comes up of do you take these and how do you obtain these specimen and he said you know that's the million dollar question in order to interact with species in art and in science and especially tiny species like this you know there is what is might be termed collateral damage sometimes which seems a little bit uh inane mm. but I guess there's also that scientific principle of that which you study, you change. Mm. Um, and whether that's artistic uh, exploration or whether that's scientific kind of traditional study or more open-ended scientific exploration, there's always a kind of an impact to what you're doing. Um, and I think it's important to be able to to recognise that and to be open to that without trying to hide that that's, that's a factor of what you're doing. Um, because it's quite easy to, with like lab mice or something like that to sort of just pretend that the existences of these mice doesn't really matter they're just these kind of generic sort of beings that will do whatever you want them to do um without kind of imagining the more complex nuances of that mm. and after all you are trying to sort of understand better what this wonderful gift of life entails mm. in its many shapes forms and and dimensions yeah exactly um, so I think that that brings us to a close quite nicely um, with Fiona and Tom. If you um, do, would like to check out any more of Fiona's work, certainly look her up as Feral Practice on Google. Yeah. You can always you can also follow her on Instagram at Feral Practice, and uh, we will also be publishing some images of her work on the Omved Instagram. Um, on the day that this podcast goes out. So keep an eye out for that at Omved Gardens. And also, if you'd like to find out any more information about Omved Gardens, check out omvedgardens.com. Thank you, Anna, for joining us again. Thanks for having me. And thank you, producer Louis, who's growing a fantastic mullet in the corner. Um, we'll see you next time. Looking forward to it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe or for more information, visit omvedgardens.com or follow us on Instagram at omvedgardens.